You working on another book? Yes, I am. It must really be something, making stuff up all the time. Yeah, it teaches you to lie. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's review of Basic Instinct. She's evil! She's brilliant! A review chosen by Now Playing patron, Kyle. He gave me a lot of pleasure. Part of our Basic Instinct movie retrospective series. She knows where I live and breathe. Hosted by Arnie. Liked his drugs, he liked his girls, he liked his rock and roll. Jacob. You're dealing with a devious, diabolical mind. And Stuart. You like playing games, don't you? Games are fun. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Listen to me, Curran. I'm going to get a lot of heat on this. I don't want any mistakes. We hope you enjoy the show. You're in over your head. Maybe. But this is how I'll catch my killer. Today we're discussing Basic Instinct, starring Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, George Zunza, Gene Triplehorn, Wayne Knight, directed by Paul Verhoeven. This is the now-playing co-host who likes his Jack Daniels with Coke, because Pepsi just isn't the same. Arnie. And Stuart. And this is just your average, healthy, totally fucked up podcaster, Jacob. What's better for Valentine's Day than my bloody Valentine? Basic Instinct. Yes, this was picked by Kyle, and Kyle has selected movies for us to review before. If you remember a while back, we did film noir film from the 80s, Body Heat. Definitely thought of that while watching this. He said that he thinks Body Heat is one of the more classy film noirs, and Basic Instinct is the trashiest film noir, (laughs) so he thought he'd have us do that again. He said it's one of his favorites in the whole erotic thriller genre, and so a good contrast to Body Heat. Yeah, it is Paul Verhoeven, so excess. And Paul Verhoeven, it should be said, up to this point had the reputation in America of being a science fiction guy. Robocop, Total Recall. You wouldn't necessarily think, oh, if I'm making a Hitchcockian murder mystery with lots of nudity, that would be his thing. But I don't know if either one of you have ever seen any of his Dutch films. He made something very much along these lines with a lot of graphic erotic imagery. The Fourth Man... I saw it. I watched it for this review. Verhoeven said in the bonus features that this could almost be seen as a remake or a sequel of The Fourth Man, and I'm like, all right, well, then I need to go back and see that. So it's my first time seeing one of his Dutch films. It was even shot by Jan de Bont, and you could see both of them. It was in 83. Very early, very unpolished. Both of them would get better at their craft. But it was about a Black Widow-type woman who, is she murdering her lovers, question mark? Somebody's kind of caught in the middle trying to find that out. I haven't gone back and watched those ones. I I know he came out with a horny nun movie last year that I'm planning on seeing. (laughs) Yes. And of course, Showgirls, which we will cover one day. I cannot believe that we have not. But 
yeah, Paul Verhoeven was a director uh, that I was very excited to see his work back in 1992. And nothing surprises me more than to realize that this movie is nearly 30 years old. But when I think about Basic Instinct, it's true. At that time, I was in high school, and I knew everything I knew about movies because I subscribed to Premiere Magazine. And Premiere hyped Basic Instinct for months and months. I was very aware that this movie was coming, and I was very excited by the things I was hearing Paul Verhoeven say about it, which many of which ended up not being true. Like this would be the first film with an erect penis in it that got an R rating. Maybe that's on the cutting room floor. Michael Douglas refused full frontal. I heard they did a makeup test. I heard he had a plastic heart on. <laughs> if so, that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, I did all the bonus features and a lot of extra research. I basically went to the school der Verhoeven. I heard him speak for about 12 hours at this point about filmmaking. Michael Douglas doesn't come up a whole lot with this. He was attached to the project early on. The big topic is Sharon Stone that they discuss. So we'll get into it. But yeah, there was no mention of makeup tests with erect penises. I remember this movie coming out in early 92 because I was a high school senior. And I wanted to see this movie. The reviews were positive. I mean, you know why you wanted to see this movie. <laughs> No, no, no. I was a fan of Fatal Attraction, and yet I stayed away from this film because there were all these jokes going around my class about, oh yeah, people are going to go see that movie and buy one big bucket of popcorn, har, 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 do a Pee Wee Herman, har, har, har. And so, because of all of this, I didn't go to the movie. I didn't want to be seen by anybody going to this movie. It was like going into the porn house. You just didn't want to do it. And I didn't have any friends who wanted to go. Not that I think that would have made it any better. But eventually it was a Sunday night and I decide, what the hell? I'm going to go see Basic Instinct. I go to like a seven o'clock show. You bought a ticket for another movie. <laughs> No, I bought a ticket for Basic Instinct. I didn't know the ticket clerk. She went to a different school. <laughs> I walk out of Basic Instinct, go use the restroom, walk out. Who's standing there but some of my high school friends? Oh, Artie, what'd you come to see? And I'm like, um, ah, uh, what else is playing at this theater? And finally, I'm just like, Basic Instinct. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen this one. I'm the newbie here because what I knew about this, I think what everyone knows about it, an ice pick and Sharon Stone's going to flash the camera. And there's no way in my conservative family that like this was the movie we were going to go see at the theater. So I just never saw it. And then it just became, oh, it's a thing where Sharon Stone flashes the camera. And that's like what I knew about this film. I'm like, do I really need to see that? Like I could move on. But I guess that's how I were here at now playing. Should you go see this? Is this more than a bunch of nudity? Well, I mean, I think it's the movie that made Sharon Stone Sharon Stone. I mean, yeah, she played a femme fatale in Total Recall. And yeah, she had done some junk in the 80s, Action Jackson. <laughs> I think she did a Steven Seagal movie. But largely up to this point, she was a nobody. And I think they were looking at lots of different actresses to do it. It's telling that we remember this as a Sharon Stone movie. I do think, for better or for worse, she is maybe even more identifiable than Michael Douglas. She wanted this role. She wanted to break out of the role she was having. And to hear Verhoeven and Michael Douglas talk about it, they're not even calling her a B-list actor. They're like, she's a C-list actress. We don't want her. And 
one of the things that had been said about her in other auditions is, you're not sexy. So, actually, in 1990, she went and did a Playboy shoot. She was intentionally trying to change her image to be a sexy actress. Wow. That's kind of surprising you're not sexy, that she would ever get that label. I mean, she's always been very attractive, all her movies. She worked with Verhoeven before in Total Recall, where she was like, Arnold's sexy wife wearing that teddy. Like, that is weird. Yeah, and that was before the Playboy shoot. So, the other thing to think about... She was about 34 when this movie was made, and that's about the time most actresses' careers sunset. If there's an actress I loathe, Julia Roberts, <laughs> I actually look, okay, when do they turn 35? Because I'll never hear from them again. It is just like a light switch that turns off in your career. She was almost at that point. It's very weird that she became a superstar at that point and had eight good years of filmmaking. No. Good as in she made a lot of money. Okay. Not good <laughs> as in she made good movies. Yeah, okay. All right, thank you for clarifying. Yes, she came into her fame late in the game. But nobody wanted her, and Michael Douglas was attached to this script early on. I mean, this script by Joe Esterhouse. We have not talked about Joe Esterhouse, a notorious screenwriter. Also did do Showgirls, but had some hits beforehand. Flashdance, which I've never seen, actually. But it was also just beloved for being this larger-than-life figure. I mean, he took on Michael Ovitz and the agency mentality of the 80s. And so, like, he's got a, an interesting career, made a lot of different films. But, yeah, kind of a schlocky character. I, I don't feel like a lot of his movies hold up well, even though he's well-paid. And I do think this held the record at the time, that he got the highest salary of any screenwriter for turning in this script. First draft. Get this. He held a record for the highest selling script for $1.25 million. That's all? For the film Big Shots. Oh, right. The little kid movie? Those two kids in Chicago. Remember that movie? Yeah, it was yeah. an incredible bomb. This is what I mean about Joe Esterhouse. Like, he gets paid lots of money to produce showgirls and things that are really terrible and don't have much cultural impact. But I think he's probably fun at parties. And so he's got good stories. And so he just gets those big checks. I saw big shots in theaters. Did you? On a date in seventh grade. <laughs> Oh, yes. I'm remembering that story now. Big shots. Yeah. It was not even like Goonies. Like it was very minor in the little kids 80s film pantheon. But yes, Joe Esterhouse, he got a 1.5 million for big shots. I would have to think he'd get a lot more for this. He got 1.25 million for big shots. And then he was really upset because somebody stole his crown for the highest selling script. Baby geniuses. <laughs> Shane Black got $1.5 million for The Last Boy Scout. Oh, Bruce Willis. Okay. And that was the new record. Yes. And so Esther House wanted more. He had this basic instinct script. It ended up in a bidding war. And Esther House was waiting and saying, let's see what Carol Co. does. Let's see what Carol Co. does. And Carol Co. came in and was like, $3 million sold. Yeah, that was my memory. I wanted to say $3 million. Yeah, this thing, again, Premier Magazine was like, it was always breaking records. This one was going to shock you with nudity you've never seen. People were getting paid astronomical fees. I think Michael Douglas got something like $15 million on this one as well. Like, he was the highest paid actor to do this movie. 
this is an original script. This isn't based on a novel or anything. Just it got that buzz and people bit it up. Yep. But by bringing Michael Douglas on early, he had a large amount of creative control, including co-star approval. Mm-hmm. And he knew this was going to have a lot of nudity. He knew what Verhoeven was going for. Verhoeven was like, I'm not budging on this. What is on the script is what happens. And, I mean, we could talk about it. This movie was protested by a lot of groups. They ended up meeting with some of these groups, glad, and rewriting the script to try to appease the protesting groups. And the film ended up so far away from what the script is that Verhoeven threw them all out and said, we're just going right back to what Esther House wrote, and we are filming that, and we are doing what is on the page and we're doing this with as much nudity as I say. Any actress who comes on must basically be my puppet. You must do as I tell you and be as nude as you want. And so it's no wonder Kim Basinger, Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner, <laughs> Kelly Lynch, Ellen Barkin, Demi Moore all said no. <laughs> Although I feel like many of them ended up doing like a ripoff. Erotic thrillers became a big deal. Yeah, Demi Moore was in some stripper movie eventually, wasn't she? Striptease, but that was only about 30 seconds versus the amount of nudity that's in this film. There was one actress who agreed to do the nudity, Muriel Hemingway. Mm -hmm. But then it ended up not working out with her schedule. They just couldn't find someone, and meanwhile... Verhoeven was doing looping for Total Recall, and Sharon Stone came in, dressed in a sexy dress. She wasn't going to ask for the part, but she, like, acted coolly and tried to be real sexy during the looping session, which I can only imagine how sexy you can be while redoing <laughs> lines you did in the past in the same tone of voice. But Verhoeven did screen tests with her. And kept pitching her and Michael Douglas said no a million times because he's like, this movie's a risk. This movie could very well tank. And if it tanks, it can't be a Michael Douglas movie. It could be a Michael Douglas and Gina Davis movie. But it can't just be standing on the shoulders of Michael Douglas. And this Sharon Stone is way too C-list to take any of the blame if this goes flaming down. Yes, he wants someone else to take the fall for him. Someone big enough to take that fall. Yes, Michael Douglas has got to be thinking a lot about his reputation. And again, to go into a movie this seedy and controversial, you mentioned some of the groups that were protesting this. This movie was basically seen as the second coming of Cruising. We've covered that Al Pacino movie where he goes into the gay S&M club, and a lot of the protests came from the idea that this was going to involve lots of demeaning portrayals of lesbians and bisexuals and gay people at a time when AIDS was at its height and people were dying, and they thought that this would contribute to the negative image gay people had. So I definitely think that was another risk, another many reasons why you wouldn't want to do this, Michael. Fourth or fifth on my list would be Sharon Stone. I feel like there's a lot about this project that could definitely blow up in your face. 
Meanwhile, to hear producer Mario Casar talk about it, he's like, we wanted to make this film as a statement against the homophobia in Hollywood, about how they always mistreat gays, and so we're going to present this positive portrayal. <laughs> With vengeful lesbians? This is called <laughs> gaslighting. This is saying the opposite of what you're actually doing so that it confuses and befuddles people that are, yeah. Like, what are you talking about? This is not positive. I, I was all for it. <laughs> Sure, you're not a lesbian. You're not going to be <laughs> equated as someone that needs a phallic symbol to feel complete and is stabbing every man that she can because secretly she's an evil woman fucker. But Sharon Stone, in retrospect, who else could have played this part? I do feel like it was perfect for her. It was perfect for Michael Douglas, really. I mean, you mentioned Fatal Attraction and the erotic thrillers that would come. He was in many of them. I, I associate him with sort of the 80s slick yuppie guy that does oftentimes get entangled in these noir plots. It was dynamo casting. And again, you say Paul Verhoeven, I was really intrigued by this. But when I saw it back in 1992, I remember pretty much hating it. Like, I only saw it once. I walked out of it. I had gone with a, a group of friends from work, work being at that time Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and we all thought it was pretty terrible, and I didn't think it had a prayer of being a hit. Shows you what I know. Had no idea it would have the cultural impact that it did, and yeah, made what? For an erotic thriller, like, more money than any Fatal Attraction or anything like that beforehand. I think 130, something like that in the States. Maybe close to 300, 400 million when you add up all those international receipts. That's not so surprising. And really, I think creating Skinamax. I mean, creating a whole genre. We didn't have that then. And after this movie, we realized that there was a need. That people had a need <laughs> to see this kind of stuff. And there was a cable outlet that was ready to supply it. See, you said you hated it. I Liked this movie a lot. I watched it again on video in the 90s one time. And then when DVD came around in the late 90s, I'll give a throwback to the Gen Xers out there who may remember this. When DVD players were new, you'd buy one and it would have a mail-away offer where you'd get five movies. So that way you didn't feel like you just had to buy all your VHS tapes over again. You were getting five movies from the selection. Now, one of the movies you had to get was Lost in Space, and I bought two <laughs> DVD players, so I had two copies of Lost in Space. But the other picks you could pick, I picked Basic Instinct, and it turned out to be the first one I watched when those free ones arrived in the mail. But not for the reason you might think. It had something I'd never heard of before. A description commentary for the visually impaired. Oh, so you get a free erotic audiobook with it, too, basically. I had to jump right to the sex scene and listen to <laughs> she drags her nails across his back, tearing the skin and the blood is exposed. It was the most sterile sex scene reading ever. But then I watched the movie probably three or four times over the span of several years on video, remembered really liking it, was excited to come back to it for the first time in 20 years. Really liking it? I don't remember you really like it. I thought we all agreed it was terrible. I didn't know anyone that <laughs> thought it was good. I think you and I never discussed this movie. Okay, that's possible. I mean, we we talk about a lot of movies, but I didn't. I know I didn't go with you, and I know I didn't really think about this movie afterwards. 
And my opinion of Paul Vorhoven really changed after this movie because he did make Showgirls Starship Troopers and pretty much that was kind of the end of him at that point. His Hollywood career was over. I've been wondering, though, for a long time, and it really started when we covered the David Fincher series and the game, was did I miss out on something? Is there something about this era that I wasn't aware of pre-sexual identity at that time that coming back to it now I could see that it was smarter and maybe I was willing to give it credit for. I was hoping for that and I certainly feel like the people involved have made good films in other areas. I would come back to this even though my memory was ooh terrible that I could really rediscover something either as a green arrow or a brown arrow. So I have to ask then, which version did you see? Now, I'll dispel one rumor. There was a rumor going around that in 2021 in France, a triple X version of this movie was going to be released. I mean, that's the normal version, I think. (laughs) Sharon Stone was going on talk shows and saying how her lawyers were trying to stop Verhoeven was going back and getting all the footage and putting it all back together and making something against her will that was going to be a triple X cut and doing it overseas so American laws didn't apply. Yeah, Sharon, he was doing a 4K restoration. That's all he did. (laughs) So that was all this stuff about a triple X cut. I I remember being excited in 2020, like I have to order an international Blu-ray next year. And all he did was a 4K restoration of the director's cut so there's the theatrical cut or the director's cut do you guys know which one you saw i didn't see an unrated labeling on mine so i'm guessing it's the theatrical cut but is there a scene is there a way to easily tell i think there is if you're watching the opening and you wince when she puts the ice pick through his face you saw the unrated okay i saw the unrated because my note was oh this is like the ed 209 shooting in robocop yeah it was extremely graphic yeah i keep forgetting that robocop the way i know it was entirely unrated because it was going to be x in theaters the difference amounts to about 42 seconds and it's mostly alternate shots he filmed these sex scenes a hundred different ways so that he could eventually make the mpaa happy by having a wide shot here instead of a close-up there but this is the film he wanted to have before of course the mpaa gave this an nc-17 and he was contractually obligated to deliver an r rating and so we ended up having to wait for video and dvd to see his ultimate vision realized Ultimate Vision. Yeah, it's not any different. I would say largely it's the exact same movie, but the opening kill will really... That's where it made a difference for me. Anything else, we'll talk about it, but it certainly has been 30 years, and I think the shock value has definitely lessened. What must have seen at the height of Risque these days? I don't know. Arnie, give him the plot, and we'll see if Basic Instinct still shocks. Johnny Boz is dead. Stabbed to death with an ice pick while having sex with a blonde woman. In charge of finding the killer is San Francisco homicide detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas. The most likely suspect seems to be Boz's audacious lover, crime novelist Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone. One of Catherine's books depicts a murder identical to how Boz was killed, which, Catherine says, proves her innocence as nobody would publish in a book how they plan to kill someone. Nick has no proof to charge Catherine, but he continues to investigate. Meanwhile, Nick has problems of his own. 
He's called Shooter at the department as he's had four shooting incidents in five years, the last one killing two tourists who got in the line of fire. After that incident, Nick's wife killed herself. Nick was investigated by internal affairs for the shooting, and he's had to undergo therapy with police psychologist Dr. Beth Garner, played by Jean Triplehorn. Nick ended up having a secret affair with the doctor, and, of course, she cleared his name. Was it really that secret? I don't know, it seemed pretty out there. After the shooting, Nick gave up using cocaine and drinking, but after his encounter with Catherine, Nick is back on the bottle. Catherine said her new novel is about a police detective and she's basing it on Nick. She has information about Nick that only Beth knew. And it turns out, Beth gave Nick's private file to Internal Affairs Officer Nielsen. Soon after, Nielsen is found shot in the head. Nick's co-workers suspect Nick may be involved, and he has to turn in his badge. During this period, Nick follows Catherine, and the two begin a torrid sexual relationship that Nick calls the fuck of the century. This makes Catherine's girlfriend Roxy jealous, and Roxy hits Nick with a car. In the chase that follows, Roxy runs off the road and is killed. Catherine confides in Nick about an affair she had in college with another woman. After just one sexual encounter, this woman became obsessed with Catherine and began to stalk her. Nick wonders if this mystery woman could be the one who killed Johnny Boz, but his investigation leads him to discover that Catherine's stalker and lover was Beth. Nick also finds out Beth was married and her husband was shot and killed. Beth was briefly a suspect as she had a lesbian lover at the time. Beth is now a prime suspect in these killings. Nick and his partner, Detective Gus Morin, go to talk to Beth, but Gus is stabbed to death in the elevator of Beth's apartment building. Nick finds his partner's body as Beth comes. When Beth won't take her hands out of her coat pockets, Nick shoots and kills her. Evidence is found in Beth's apartment, including a blonde wig and a pistol, that implicates Beth in all the murders. She was apparently still obsessed with Catherine, and killed Catherine's lover, just as Catherine wrote in her book. The case is closed, but Nick still has his doubts. But those doubts don't stop him from going back to Catherine for more fucks of the century, and we see that under Catherine's bed is an ice pick. Was she the killer all along? Will she kill Nick? These questions might linger as credits roll. And when we start, one of the things I remember really do liking about this movie is the score. Obviously, I've now seen a lot of Hitchcock movies. I wouldn't have maybe known in 1992 that this was a riff on Bernard Herrmann and Vertigo, but it's a lovely, intriguing, entrancing score that they play throughout the film and really does give it sort of a classy, old-fashioned feeling, even when it gets all sweaty and grimy and erotic. Yeah, maybe it's the association with Vorhoven and Robocop, but like I got Robocop vibes with this score. Not that that's a bad thing. Like that's a great score. I own that one. Listen to it. It's got, yeah, a lot of emotion in it and really stands out and pulled me in. Yeah, Robocop was Basil Polaris or however you pronounce his last name. This is Jerry Goldsmith, but I'll hold this up as one of Jerry Goldsmith's best. But to saying a lot. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Star Trek Next Generation, The Omen, Poltergeist, Alien. I know. He's done a lot of great music, but this is something that I've listened to as just a soundtrack. It's got a great melody to it. It's a really good tune. And it, I think across the board, it heightens the movie itself. And yes, you say Vertigo. This is the first of 
a million things that are going to make you think Vertigo. I actually only saw Vertigo for the first time last year. Watching this movie this time, I'm like, oh, okay. So they were definitely looking specifically at Hitchcock and Vertigo when trying to make this Joe Esterhouse film. Yeah, Hitchcock really did lay the blueprint down for erotic thrillers and... This movie isn't the only one guilty of it, but certainly Vorhoven is not shy about paying homage. Like, it's pretty much all up there, but with a twist. This time we're going to see tits. This time we're going to see fucking. This time we're going to see ice picks going through people's faces. And yeah, I think that this opening is a grabber. Yeah, all of that from frame one, like mirror over the bed, hardcore fucking. It is, and... You could clearly tell it's Sharon Stone on top, right? I mean, this thing's a murder mystery, a noir film, but that's Sharon Stone on top right there. They put the hair in her face and try to obscure her as best they can, but I think from frame one, the murder mystery isn't entirely what's going to be sold here. I actually am not certain, even in this moment, that that wasn't just some body double. I wouldn't bet that they got Sharon Stone to film that scene. I think we're supposed to think of her as an anonymous blonde. Sharon Stone did film the scene. Okay. I'm surprised because I actually wrote down, I'm like, oh, hair in the face. Yeah, sure, they're trying to disguise the killer so we don't know who it is. But I'm like, she didn't agree to this. That's why they got the hair covering the face. But you're saying it's her. Well, more to the point, Vertigo plays with the idea that several different women can look like the same woman. And, you know, it's a guessing game. And that's certainly this movie's idea as well, is that uh, we know the killer is a blonde, but we can't be sure about which blonde she is. There'll be several of those. And it's a steamy scene. I'll say that at this point in my life, when I'd seen this in theaters, I'd seen a lot of sex on film. And this is some of the more steamy with her tying him up and just the way it's filmed. Everything is in these warm tones and the close-ups of things. It's definitely erotic it's definitely explicit. It doesn't feel exploitive. When you say it doesn't feel exploitive, that to me says it's not sex for sex's sake, which of course it is. It's not exploitive as in I feel like it doesn't move the narrative forward and they're just doing this in a Skinamax way to have a sex scene. I feel like this scene is vital to set the tone of the movie in both the sex and then when the sex climaxes with an ice pick. Yeah, I mean, we've learned the M.O. And, I mean, I don't know. It's really tame now. I mean, their idea of bondage is like a white scarf and his hands <laughs> on the railings. Like, this is... Three years later, Quentin Tarantino would say, bring out the gimp. So, yes, <laughs> S&M would go a long way really fast. No exaggeration. This could fly on network TV now. Maybe until that ice pick comes out. And again, the unrated version, like we get a shot to the eye. I don't know if that's in the theatrical one, but no. Yeah, I'm wincing at that ice pick attack. I love Rob Botton. He did all of the thing, John Carpenter thing, makeup effects. And when they had breathed the Mars air and their eyeballs all popped out in Total Recall. Like, all right, that wasn't the greatest. <laughs> I, it was fun, though. It was, I mean, again, yeah, I, I, I really <laughs> enjoy his visual style. And so in comes Michael Douglas, and Stuart, you said that you thought he was perfect for this role. Esther House didn't. This was supposed to be like a 24-year-old cop. It was supposed to be somebody much more fresh, and when he filmed this, he was 48. They changed the script to write it for him, aging him at 42, but you could see this guy 
is seasoned. That's shocking to me because this seems like the perfect casting. Like, you want seedy, dirty cop going to go around and have explicit sex. Like, yeah, this is the guy I would cast. That's a shock that they didn't want him, that they wanted someone younger. Because to me, Michael Douglas feels perfect here. Not only that, I mean, I hope I'm not revealing too much. I think it's a public knowledge, but, like, he did struggle with sex addiction. And I do think that, like, it was movies like this was where he was starting to develop that. And so I think he just had that reputation of being sort of the kinky, macho guy. Like, this was sort of his image coming out of the 80s, heading into the 90s. This is him going next level with Fatal Attraction. But I guess I shouldn't complain about the age. I'm paying very close attention to the dialogue this time around. He goes up to the murder scene. They're talking about this Johnny Boz guy. And they're saying he was a rock star who turned into a club owner. Well, he was a rock star with hits in the mid-60s. So this guy was probably 50s, 60s himself. Yeah, no, I definitely think that we're going to realize that the killer well let's just go ahead and say it Catherine has a type she is going to be the killer i think it's pretty obvious as arnie said like it's not really hidden in a way that's very hard to figure out they try i'll say that but yes this is really not about a mystery this is kind of a fantasy again watch some skinamax they're all about middle-aged men realizing they're still virile by messing around with dangerous psychotic women yeah i wanted to ask you is it is it a problem that it's not really a mystery? Like, the whole time, I'm like, 75%, it's Sharon Stone is the killer. Like, they're going to try to throw out some other suspects, but I was always pretty sure it was her, and I don't think that necessarily hurts, because I don't think this is about the mystery. It's about something else. When I talk about this movie throughout this review, one of the things that I've loved about it in this viewing is its noir aspect. When I saw this in high school, I hadn't taken any film classes. I didn't even know what noir was. But watching it now and seeing how Verhoeven filmed it and knowing that I like noir films from the Maltese Falcon all the way up, you know, to Body Heat and beyond, I like the femme fatale. I like the duplicity. I like the mystery. And so the fact that it's obviously Catherine... To me, it doesn't kill the movie, but it would have been nice if there was a twist like we had in Body Heat. The fact that Kathleen Turner and Body Heat turned out to be so duplicitous at the end. I like a movie with a little bit of mystery to it, and I think going in, I knew I was seeing a movie where Catherine was the killer. That had actually been spoiled by some of the gay groups protesting it. There were picket signs and all, and they would wear shirts saying Catherine did it. They wanted people to know. And I'm like, nah, it doesn't matter. That's not why people are going to this movie. It was for the sex. It was the same reason people subscribe to Cinemax. Oh, yes, I want to see movies and I care about plot. But truthfully, think about the time. If you wanted to see porn, you'd have to go to that section. Like some people saw that as stigmatizing. This gave you permission to see some sweaty softcore and not feel like you were one of those dirty people. Okay, I have an issue with one of the words you said. Sweaty. My problem with the sex of this movie is it is way too beautiful. And I'm watching this film. I watched it four times for this review. It was a hardship. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm watching this and something about the sex scenes didn't seem right. And it wasn't that they were over choreographed. It wasn't that the parts weren't lining up like in Skinamax. I'm like, something is wrong with these scenes. There's not a drop of sweat on anyone during these sex scenes. They are baby powder dry in all of it. And yet as hard as they're fucking and as much as they're working... It should be sweaty sex. Yeah, I guess we are told that there's cum stains all over the sheets everywhere. And yeah, it looked pretty clean, but I really like how this film looks. And so maybe it's the lighting and the cinematography. I'm not upset that there's a lack of sweat. No, it's just Verhoeven went on and on and on and on and on in the places I've talked about filming real sex. And how he had to have this nudity because... In other movies, it's fake sex. It's not how sex really is. And I think about the L-shaped sheet that you always see in movies (laughs) where the man is only covered to the groin, but the woman's covered to the neck, things like that. Women having sex with their tops on, and he talks about that. He wanted to show real sex. And I'm like, you got 90% of the way there, but man, when they're done... They are as beautiful as when they started. Their hair is perfect. Their makeup is perfect. And so it's honestly my only flaw with the sex scenes, if he was going for realism, is when they're done, they look like they just had a a relaxing time and not done a physical workout. Realism is not a word that I would have used (laughs) to describe this movie, (laughs) but I do feel like Verhoeven... Uh, To hear Joe Hesterhaus say it, uh, they really sexed up his script. Like, he knew that it had an erotic content, but he wouldn't have wanted this movie to be sold as a sex thriller. I think it is Verhoeven who makes all the choices to really have the grunting and groaning. And I mean, mean, this movie is heavy breathing. I mean, maybe it's not literally sweaty, Arnie, but I do feel like the performers have been coached to act in a way that feels like they're always dry humping each other, like even in the non-sex scenes. Yeah, the way like Sharon Stone is grinding and stuff, it does feel like, is there penetration going on? Like it feels more hardcore than most movies. I don't blame you. I did go back. I watched Sharon Stone on Larry King Live back in 1992. And Larry King was like, so was there real sex going on there? Of course there wasn't real sex going on there, Larry. There's an entire crew. They're setting up lighting. They're setting up shots. But Larry thought there might be. And that is always a a tease. I think Nine and a Half Weeks had that reputation. Kim Basinger, Mickey Rourke. Uh, Allegedly, they did it at the refrigerator. Who knows? But you'd want to believe that. You'd want to believe that your stars have that chemistry. And let's talk about her. We've seen Michael Douglas saunter in here, basically playing Humphrey Bogart. Although, I don't ever remember seeing Humphrey's butt cheeks. (laughs) And uh, yes, we're now getting his match in this game. This woman that is basically going to dare him to play with her and see if he's smart enough to catch her. Well, I guess first he stops by her house and we see her lesbian lover. I'm sorry, excuse me, her friend... Roxy, heavy breathing on the staircase, and then he heads out on Highway 1 up to some, I I don't know, enchanted cottage by the sea. What kind of... I don't even think Stephen King could afford the luxuries of the way that this author is living. But <laughs> Catherine is, I think she has over $100 million in part because she's killed the right people. Yeah, her parents. She killed her parents and became rich is what we find out in the middle of this. Plus a boxer. Yeah. So she's living off a lot of inheritances. This is the beach house. And 
What a gorgeous aerial shot of the beach as they're driving up to that beach house, though. Again, it's making me think of all of the films shot in and around San Francisco with the winding roads, but here they're on basically a cliffside. You see the ocean as they're driving. This movie is shot by Jan DeBont, who would go on to be a director for Speed. He'd also shot Die Hard at this point. And he does such a great job of grandeur in this moment. Uh, You know, you don't see a whole lot of her beach house, but the drive there sells opulence. And of course, she has a bigger Picasso than Johnny Boz. I I like that little detail. Like, she's the one with the real money. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to ask. I'm curious. I personally don't think Sharon Stone, when we see her in these moments is really nailing it. Like, my memory and my hope was that she was a lot of fun to watch in this part. But something about the unnaturalism of the way that these people are directed, frankly, I think it's how they're being told to act. It's very campy. It's very exaggerated in a way that I feel like they watched Body Heat and did a lot of cocaine and are are now trying to do it, like, hopped up. Yeah, I felt like they were told to act like you're in a noir thriller yes, film, like right. in a self-aware type mm. of way. That said, like, look, maybe because the only other big film is Sharon Stone that comes to mind. Yeah, there's Total Recall. But Catwoman, like, you'd say Sharon Stone. That's the movie that comes to mind. So, like, here, she's impressive. Like, better than Catwoman. Not Casino, where she was nominated for an Academy Award for acting. I forget she's in Casino. (laughs) Not Sliver, which was her big starring follow-up hit to this. You go straight to Catwoman. I think we're going to talk more Catwoman next week than this week. But, you know, I understand that how they're acting is stilted and stylized. That said, one of my problems with old movies when you go back to the 30s and 40s is how unnatural the people are acting there. I feel that pushes me out of a movie. And here, because this is an homage to those types of films, I really go with it. Now, in this scene, Sharon Stone is very forgettable. If this was her performance throughout the entire movie, we wouldn't be talking about this movie. It's going to be her second scene that's really going to sell it. But she is a supporting actress. You think of this movie... You think Sharon Stone. I think I could go out on the streets and ask people who's the male lead of Basic Instinct, and I'd bet only one out of five people could very quickly tell me it was Michael Douglas. Everybody knows Sharon Stone with this film, but this is his movie. We're going to follow him the entire way from this point on. Back to the police station, discussing, you know, do we have enough evidence? All of this police procedural stuff is going to fill up a large portion of the movie. Yeah, he represents the conservative core of America at this time that is giving themselves permission to go. He lets them go. Like, if it were somebody more greasy, more edgy, Nick Cage, Mickey Rourke, ooh, that guy's a scumbag. But Michael Douglas is a slickster. You know, he's Gordon Gecko. He lives the commercial life. And so, yeah, I think you use him as a way of keeping people on board that, again, it's funny to think about now, but this would have been at a time when certain members of the audience don't normally go to those kinds of movies. Yeah, I do think this would be a great date movie as it gives permission for adults to get heated up in a film, go home, have the fuck of the century. Like a third date, not first date. Yes, third date and on. 
Or first date if you're with the right girl, I suppose. And of course, Michael Douglas is a Mac. He's not going to just be hung up on Sharon Stone. He's already moved on from his dead wife. He's fucking his shrink. Jig triple horn. I had to figure out the timeline on this, and I still couldn't. I know he had four shootings in five years, and after the fifth shooting, there was an entire investigation, and his wife killed himself, but it still feels fairly fresh. Like, that wife can't be in the ground a full year yet. No. Well, yeah, they say he's only been sober for three months, so it feels like it's very recent. Yeah, I think that that's related. I think when they're telling you his sobriety, they're saying that was the moment she killed herself. Yeah, he's uh, only a couple weeks, really. I mean, nine and a half weeks, maybe, of uh, moving on from his dead wife. He's already told all his secrets to a therapist he was mandated to have, but now it seems like it's an open secret. Everyone at the office must know they're screwing. I mean, they show up at, at the bars together and... I mean, they make jokes about it. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's an open knowledge thing. Yeah. Jean Triplehorn, I primarily know her from Big Love, which was a show I really enjoyed. This is her first film role because, again, not a lot of established actresses really wanted to do this kind of sex and nudity. And she'd get rewarded with uh, Waterworld. Yeah, where she gets beat with a boat oar. <laughs> yeah, like, she gets it bad in this movie, really. Like, terrible treatment. We'll talk about her big sex scene, but first we'll talk about the big scene of this movie. It is ultimately decided that it has to be Catherine because in her books, she wrote about a rocker that died in exactly the way that this body has turned up. And they pull in these psychological experts to say that it's either one of two things. She's either got a stalker fan who is reading the books and then trying to frame her, or more than likely, I mean, again, look at the sly smile on her face. She is hiding in plain sight. This is what she calls a game in which I dare you to call me out on what's obvious and what I'm doing. I'm killing people. I'm telling you how I'm going to do it. And you're next. I'm writing about a detective. And do you think you're smart enough to catch me before I get you? You say they bring in some therapist. They bring in Steven Toblowski, thank you. The actor who was in Groundhog Day as the insurance salesman. <laughs> and he was Sammy Jenkins in Memento. This is a character actor I know from all over the place. Yeah, I mean, you gotta call out when Steven Toblowski shows up. I've actually seen a movie about all the movies Steven Toblowski has made, and it is kind of an amazing career. So, yes, I'll give you that, yes. It's kind of funny that he's the voice of reason about who the killer is. It's one of these two things, and everyone's like, I don't understand any of this garbage you're saying, but okay, let's haul her in, and here she goes. In a scene that is apparently not in the Joe Esterhaus script, that this was something that Paul Vorhoven improvised on set. Or, like, non-consensually shot, according to Sharon Stone, I've heard. Like, do we know the truth of what happened here? I believe I do. <laughs> I will say that I have heard Sharon Stone, I bought her autobiography. I read the relevant passages. I'm too busy reading Harry Potter books to read the entire autobiography. <laughs> I've seen a lot of interviews with Verhoeven. I even found extemporaneous interviews from this film's release where Sharon Stone talked about this. And here's what everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees that Sharon Stone's character doesn't wear underwear. There was no mystery when shooting the scene of her getting dressed in her beach house 
and Michael Douglas is looking around the corner, and you see her put on a white dress with nothing underneath, and it was in the movie's dialogue, you know I don't wear underwear, don't you, Nick? And that comes later. So it was already in the movie that she does not wear underwear. While shooting this interrogation scene, which I want to talk about more than the vagina of the interrogation scene, but we'll start with the vagina. I mean, that's the movie. (laughs) What Sharon Stone was told by Verhoeven is, oh, you wore white panties. It's reflecting the lights. We could see your panties. You have to take them off. Mm. Now, as Verhoeven tells it, she slinked them off, made a big show of it, gave him the panties as a gift, and went on shooting the film. What Sharon Stone says is, I was told it was reflecting the light, but nobody would see anything up there anyway. To which my mind goes, if it's reflecting light, obviously something up there is showing on the camera. But she didn't realize how much would be shown until she got her first screening of this, which was not a private screening. Apparently a whole bunch of studio execs were there. And when she saw how it was on screen, how clearly things were on screen. She went into the projection booth, slapped Verhoeven, stormed out, called her lawyer, and was like, how do we get this stopped? Found out there was no way to get it stopped. And then at the time, she became on board with it with, I was very shocked the first time I saw it. I uh, wasn't prepared for it, but it's very good for the character. It fits the character. It helps the movie. Now, She's backtracked on being so positive about it in later years, but no matter how you slice it, the simple facts everybody agrees were on were she wore panties, Verhoeven said take them off, and she was not prepared for the close-up the way it was in the final film. Even though Verhoeven's like, she knew where the camera was, she knew what was being filmed, but I don't think that she was prepared for the close-up. Like, that is such a a big moment, crossing the leg, shifting them. Like, she has to know, like, what the focus... Like, were we just going to see Wayne Knight sweating and have to, like, figure out what he was looking at? Like, believe all women. Like, it it does sound like it was non-consensual, but looking at everything else in this film, like, when I'm watching in that context, it felt like, oh, yeah, like she was going along with all this. It does feel like Verhoeven is pushing this. And again, when I, I the stuff that I was hearing in the run-up to this was that, again, it was going to push X-rated content. So I do feel like he had it in his mind that at every given turn, he was going to show what he could. And it was obviously his idea to do that. And how much Sharon Stone consented, I don't know. I can't speak to that. I can say, and I think anyone that knows this movie would agree, it's the most memorable moment of the film. So for better or for worse, I'm not sure that this movie would have the impact it did if it did not have her looking powerful, I will say, uh, in using her body to, yeah, turn a room full of men that are supposed to be interrogating her into sweaty little boys. Okay, say what you will, but my point of view on this is, when I was in the movie theater, I felt cheated. I didn't see anything. And then when I watched this on DVD at home, I clearly didn't see anything. And I paused it and still couldn't see anything because it was 480i, blurry-ass, 40-inch television. I mean, it would have been like five feet tall in the movie theater. You you, you didn't notice it? Blink and you miss it, okay? When it happened, I'm like, did I see a thigh? What am I looking at here? It was not until this viewing 
for this review and the home theater that I finally see something. I see pubic hair and thighs? I mean, she shows pubic hair later in the movie. The, she does do full frontal in the film. It's not spread lips, but like I thought it was pretty obvious what you're looking at there. I claim it could be thigh. I claim that there's some mystery up there. I know Sharon Stone's real problem with this is that they wouldn't take her seriously. You know, when they talk about her as an actress and they talk about this scene, what everybody talks about is her crossing, uncrossing her legs. But she felt undermined for her performance in this scene because that's all everyone would talk about. Yeah, it's such a great scene. You talk about a femme fatale and, okay, maybe her earlier scenes she wasn't the greatest, but yeah, I really like the game she plays throughout this and it starts in this interrogation room. I think it was great that she was cast for this. She does it well. Yeah, she owns this room. I said when we saw her the first time, if that's how she acted the whole movie, movie over, here... You get to see Sharon Stone become a star. I remember, Stuart, you and I had a joke at one point. We were just talking amongst ourselves, but it's like, yeah, she showed her vagina and became a superstar. But no, she put on a performance in this moment and became a superstar. She is acting against Michael Douglas and, yes, Wayne Knight Newman from Seinfeld at this point, who is... Only in this scene, and yet couldn't be better in this scene, and so perfectly cast as the DA. Yeah, the way, like, she'll light up a cigarette, no smoking in here, what are you gonna do, arrest me? Like, it's great, I love this. Even if you cut out that shot of nudity in this interrogation scene, still great. I don't agree, I don't know how else to put it. I, like, I think this movie is, is pretty silly, and I think that the fact that all of this controversy generated on that little flash... It's dated. This movie is dated. This movie doesn't have a whole lot to offer here. What we're expected to believe, this is the big noir cliche, quite frankly. We'll see it in just about any film. Cruising had it. Heat has it. There's not much difference between the killer and the cop. That is what she's trying to get at, is you are the same as me. I can pick you out of this lineup of men. Michael Douglas becomes her toy from this point forward because she can figure out through, well, of course, she's read through his psychiatric evaluations and things that he shared. We don't know that yet, but she's able to say, you're the same as me. That's not that exciting to me. Let's just talk about this for one moment since you brought it up. Apparently, a year ago, she got his psychotic file. She had that file from IA a full year earlier. So that means that the shooting, he may have only been sober three months, but that shooting had to be over a year ago because he was seeing Beth as a mandated shrink over a year ago. How exactly did she plan this, that he would be the cop? I mean, this is Joker the Dark Knight level machinations on her part. Yeah, that was my note. Heath Ledger Joker omniscience going on. But again, this is film noir. Like, it's fun to see this kind of femme fatale. And Stuart, you don't like this performance. Maybe it's campy. That's the fun in it. It isn't a deadly serious one. I feel like it's playing with those conventions. I wish, I wish, I again, it feels unnatural. I'm not attacking it for being campy. I think you'd have to play this movie campy. I couldn't take it seriously. As Arnie points out, it's redonkulous that she has got him in her sights for a full year before, you know, they're here in this interrogation room together. 
together. It's stilted. I don't know how else to put it. Like Michael Douglas, usually a good actor, is really overdoing it with all the sweating and hand-wringing. And her, like pithy little smiles and all of that. I just, it feels overbaked. It feels like, wow, this this was a time when this is all you had to do to like set the world on fire. And that makes it cute to me. Like it's quaint to think that this was seen as so sexually charged when they, it looks kind of television now. A, Nova JJ on TV, unless it's HBO. You're not getting this on NBC or anything. And what TV is now is movies. So I don't even take that as a damnation if you're looking at prestige television. I'm not talking about prestige television. I'm talking about CSI. No, no. Disagree. B, I love how stilted it is. The set design here is absolutely silly, but it is wonderful with the way it casts those noir shadows over the cops' faces, putting lines over all of them, whereas she sits in a spotlight completely unblemished, and you say dated, maybe I am also dated or dating myself with this, but this feels charged to me, and I think her performance fits this movie perfectly. I don't feel like I'm watching a 30-year-old film and laughing with nostalgia. Yeah, I'm gonna back up Arnie here, like... These sets, they do feel CSI where everything's done in the dark and like, no, that's not how cops work. But yeah, the mood, it's all about the mood and the vibe and the shadows and the spotlight. So yeah, this is not realism. This is noir and and I'm going with it. I'm enjoying the vibe here. It's just dumb. I guess that's all to put a fine point on it, to, to reduce it to a word. This movie's just very dumb. And yes, it's slick. Yes, it certainly looks good. And yes, she looks sexy. But I just think that ultimately, all of these games, all of this, who could take this seriously? Like, again, it's hard to imagine a time when this was shocking. I don't know. I feel like if this came out in theaters, like people would be talking about it just as much with the violence. I don't know. I think we're also much more puritanical than we were in 92. I agree. I I actually think their protests would be more. Everybody involved in this would be Twitter canceled. You know, you have to go sit in the timeout box with Whoopi. But (laughs) I have to ask, Stuart, you say dumb. What makes Body Heat smart in this movie dumb? I don't see that big a difference. I have the same question for him. I mean, they have a similar flavor. I, what I can tell you is I'm feeling like what I'm watching is sweaty and silly, and it's not working. You're big on that word sweaty. I don't understand what you mean by that. <laughs> Look at Wayne Knight. He's got a scene, though. That's it. Yeah, my point is that she's reduced them to puddles. It's just silly. Body heat had more to say about the human condition than this movie does. This movie is about... I want to show body parts, and I want people to dry hump each other. There's no there there. What is this movie about to you? I mean, I will agree with you there, Stuart. I agree with Arnie. Now I'm going with you, because ultimately, like, yeah, what is the point of this movie? Why does she pick Nick to go after, like, a year in advance? Like, what drew her attention there? There's a lot of questions. Maybe these will all get answered in the sequel. I doubt it, but maybe. Like, I have a lot of questions at the end of this film, but if you want a really slick, hot and heavy fun cat and mouse game film noir, I think this will satisfy. But yeah, if you want answers, maybe not. If I want porn, I'll watch porn. I don't watch this to get my rocks off. I watch this movie because I find it to be full of atmosphere and an enjoyable watch 
that keeps me engaged outside of the sex as basically a character study, a very broadly drawn character study, but a character study of a cop who was on the upswing going on the downfall because he's thinking with the wrong head. Again, which is beyond cliche, and uh, probably any noir you could watch this interplay. It would have to be that the game that they're about to have is fun. I agree. I'm not really attacking this scene per se. I'm just saying this scene, it's a low bar that it sets. And then, I don't know, we get the middle of this movie. And Michael Douglas is not fun in this movie. He's the opposite of fun to watch in this movie. I feel like he is there to reassure middle-aged men that they're virile. And he, his insecurity, it sounds like you were saying even off camera, he was very concerned about his image. I think it's evident here. This whole movie seems to exist to stroke his ego. Or stroke something of his. <laughs> but the way Verhoeven makes slick films, and that's, I'd say, even Robocop on its grainy film and its lower budget was very slick. The slickness and the way he just commits to a style that holds from the first frame to the last. I visually enjoy this film. We already talked about the score. I audio enjoy this film. And then Michael Douglas's performance, I wouldn't want him playing it more realistic with the way the rest of the film is being acted. I think he's giving exactly what you need in this role, in this part. And yeah, we're going to see that after this he's pent up he's frustrated he has a drink and he has to go get his rocks off with beth yeah i mean that's not dumb to you one car ride with Catherine, and now i'm smoking again and i'm drinking and i'm beating up the internal affairs guy and when i'm gonna have sex with beth i'm not just gonna have sex with her i'm gonna rape her i'm gonna throw her against the wall and throw her against the couch and rip off her clothes and even though she's protesting take her up the ass i don't think that was anal i think that was just doggy but yeah, I, did, I, didn't, I wouldn't go that far, but I would say rape. She says no, and, like, he keeps going. And it's all because Catherine got into his head. Like, we're supposed to believe that she's this delirious demon that's driving him to these dark basic instincts. Yeah, I feel like this is a hyper-film noir where, like, the femme fatale is so crazy. Like, yeah, you're she will drive the man to commit sexual assault, perhaps. Like, get him to do that cocaine again, get him to drink. I feel like you're damning the film because maybe it's so ridiculous where that's what I'm grabbing onto and I kind of like how just hyper crazy it goes with all that. I'm not finding that the tone is working right with it, as I guess what I'm saying. It's too stupid to be taken seriously and it's not fun. Like, I don't find, like, this scene to be fun. Anytime you see sexual assault, it's not fun. However... Jacob, you brought up the Ed 209 blowing a guy away and how over-the-top that gore is. I feel like as over-the-top the gore was in RoboCop is how over-the-top the emotions are in this movie. Like, he goes for that extreme to the point of parody in everything he does. And so here that he got so worked up after that car ride... Yeah, it's a shorthand. Yeah, it's unlikely, but she hit that nerve with him mainly because she is omnipotent and knows everything he's going to do before he does it because she had that file. And somehow 
She knew Beth was there, who was going to, we find out, be her ex-lover from college. I mean, these chess pieces are also perfectly arranged for her. Did you guys happen to look out Beth's window during the sex scene? I understand. No, there is nudity on the screen, Already, <laughs> I was not looking out the window. Yeah, I know Gene Triplehorn is there naked, but me, I'm looking out the window. And across, I thought Verhoeven had filmed across the way a threesome or an orgy going on. There's all these bodies and there's legs up in the air. And I'm like, what is going on over there? It's an aerobics class. I was going to say, is this the X-rated version of the ghost kid and three men and a little baby? No, it's an aerobics class. Later in the movie, when they're searching her apartment for evidence, there you can see aerobics instructors across the way and all the 80s aerobics gear. But I was really distracted. I thought that Verhoeven was trying to put so much sex in this movie. There was an orgy outside the window. <laughs> no, just working out. But this scene is needed also to really give Beth something to do or, you know, because otherwise we are completely going to forget about Beth if she doesn't have a relationship with Nick when it comes out at the end, because she is going to eventually be pegged as the killer. We need to really know something about her. And that comes in there pillow talk scene. Yeah, she just drops the line as they're cuddling after this, uh, perhaps rape scene. <laughs> like, and by the way, I had some classes with Catherine at Berkeley, very awkwardly dropped in exposition. Yeah, followed by a scene where we have Michael Douglas go down to the station and find out that her Berkeley professor was killed by an ice pick. And again, I think you're saying that we would forget about Beth because, well, she's not Sharon Stone. But I think it seems pretty obvious if the theory is it's either Sharon Stone or uh, someone trying to frame her, this is suspect number two. So you don't blame Hazel Dobkins, who is, if there's a flaw that makes me roll my eyes in this film, it's Hazel Dobkins, the elderly murderer BFF of Catherine. <laughs> is this also a lesbian lover? That's what I was most disappointed about. I'm like, I want the unrated cut because I want to see that scene. Like, I want to understand why she thinks she needs to hang out with yeah, Dorothy Malone from Written in the Wind, like classic melodramas of the 50s actress. Why she's coming back here to be, I don't know. Yeah, I, I can only presume that they're like hooking up off screen. They must be. Later in the film, you will see Sharon Stone like cozy up to her and play with her hair and things. I'm like, Oh, I get that vibe at the end. Yeah. I mean, Boz was in his 60s. So, you know, you're bisexual. If you're good with the 60s, I would imagine both sexes in their 60s are fine. Yeah. I definitely get that vibe when she's so, <laughs> when she shows up at the end, like they got something going on because, like, the reason we're given is Hazel and also Roxy will find out they were overcome with homicidal rage and killed family members. And so are we supposed to believe that Catherine does that too? And that's why she hangs out with these women. Like we're told it's for research for her books, but we know that's all BS. Like, is it just birds of a feather? Yes. And that's why she likes Nick as well. It's because Nick, they never quite get there, but I think what they're trying to imply is that secretly, yeah, maybe you could blame the drugs or maybe you could just say that he doesn't care about human life and he killed those tourists out of some basic instinct that she shares with him. If it were serious about its psychology, you might actually want to dive into those motives, but all of that is just, again, this man got $3 million for this script. <laughs> yeah, Hazel Dobkins, I feel, adds nothing to the script, not even a good red herring. 
And it confuses me because Catherine's life as we see it is so glamorous. She's got that gorgeous beach house. She's got this awesome slick car every piece of clothing on her has to cost thousands of dollars but she's gonna go to this what maybe two hundred thousand dollar two-bedroom house to hook up with the (laughs) senior citizen and then keep going i don't understand it at all what we're told is hazel dobkins murdered her entire family without a reason she had no motive to do it she just acted on instinct And I think how this character, Catherine, typically gets classified, she has borderline personality disorder. She goes on impulse. She swings back and forth. And these homicidal impulses just, you know, she's going to fuck you or she's going to kill you. She's not even sure yet. But she relates to people that have that similar sort of spontaneity. And maybe that's Nick's problem, too, because here's where I really agree with you how silly this film is, Stuart, is when he's supposed to be tailing Catherine and she's going out to see Hazel. And I'm like, you're the worst tailor ever. Like, it's so obvious as he's weaving in and out of traffic that someone's following you. Like, that was all very silly. I guess they're going for some exciting car chasing, but that stuff did not work for me here. Yeah, I felt like he deserves a banana in the tailpipe for as bad as he's being secretive (laughs) about tailing. But you know what? Because of the cat and mouse play and him seeing her naked and me feeling like she knew that she was in a place where he would see her naked. I feel like he's not trying to be secretive. It's part of foreplay that he tries to drive in his POS car as well as she can drive in her sports machine. Not only that, but I mean, she knows she's being followed, but she's presenting the idea in all things, including not wearing panties and changing in front of open windows, you know, so that everyone can see. I have nothing to hide. The idea is that what you see is what you get. There's nothing about me that I have to hide. And, you know, that's the joke is she's hiding in plain sight. You know, it's very evident I'm the killer, but you can't catch me in doing it, even though I'm parading around naked in front of windows and hanging out with homicidal murderers at every given turn. I'm really just, it's a middle finger to him as a detective that he's not able to bust her with all of this circumstantial evidence she's throwing right and left. Yeah, I feel like this film, if it's about anything, maybe it's about Nick's compulsiveness, his Nick's excesses alcoholic doing cocaine like that will be his downfall his lust for this woman is going to be his downfall like that is what drives him like so maybe literally that's why he drives so awful because he cannot control himself around this woman and almost ends up dying in a car accident yeah i mean if you want to take it down to basic story structure on the surface this would be a man versus man story right it's cop versus criminal but what this really is is man versus self It's his own hedonism that's going to cause all of the problems that go down. He's just being manipulated, but he's able to be manipulated. And to that point, I feel like that is for this $3 million script. That's something that's lacking is more development for Nick. Like all this stuff is hinted at about shooting a tourist and, you know, drugs and that. Like, I do feel like you would have to, I don't know, because it's Michael Douglas and I always see him as this greasy character. Like that's probably up to no good anyway. It doesn't feel like the downfall of a man. It just feels Mm. like, yeah, he got what's coming to him. No, and I don't think this movie is about downfalls. Yes, he is being sucked in, but again, he's on to her as well. The reason why he's so mad 
you know, at that interrogation room is that she goes and takes a lie detector test and the guy that's running that said, well, the machine's never wrong. And he knows very well it is because he was put on a lie detector test and lied about killing those turnips. Yeah. So again, they're so alike that they're able to trick the same people and the same machines. And again, this is all about like stripping it down to get into the bedroom. I mean, if it's about anything, it's about two very like-minded people getting it on we're supposed to think with each given turn it's going to be the fuck of the century once we finally get them into bed but there's one other wrinkle we have here in the middle and that is that the internal affairs agent that was dogging him winds up with a bullet in his head yeah as we mentioned he sold that file because she knows things about him nobody could know she knows that his wife calls him nikki she knows the department calls him shooter she knows his wife killed herself, and maybe because she knew that he was more guilty than he was saying when shooting those tourists, and how would she know all of this? I wondered that myself watching the film. We're going to explain it. Is These are things that Nick had told to Beth under the confidentiality of psychotherapy, and Beth to save Nick's job, mm. had to give that file to Internal Affairs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I can't believe he bought that line. But yes, she, I did it for you. I leaked all of your personal information to the guy you hate. Well, he doesn't really take that well because she does go to him to apologize and he's like, leave your key for my apartment, which she keeps on this giant Bart Simpson keychain. <laughs> it was the 90s. <laughs> if anything pulls me out of this movie, if anything dates this movie, it is her keychain. Don't have a cow, Arnie. Come on. <laughs> but yes, he attacks Nielsen, the IA officer, in his office and so when he shows up with a bullet wound in the head that night, now we get the interrogation scene somewhat replayed, but Nick is sitting in that chair, and we don't want to see Michael Douglas cross and uncross his legs. Yeah, not quite as sexy when he lights that cigarette. I'm like, yeah, put it out. We don't want to see you smoke. But here's the problem with well, among many, but a, a central one with the uh, design of this movie, is that we'd have to believe that he's a suspect. We'd have to believe that Nick actually might be the guy that went out there in his agitated state, thanks to Catherine, he's got ideas, and just being horny might make him do something erratic. I don't think we're ever really convinced that Nick is capable of killing this internal affairs agent, but it would work for the mystery. I mean, think about cruising. The deeper that Al Pacino went into the scene, the more we wondered about some of peripheral characters and who killed who i slightly disagree i mean i had a different interpretation that it's it's not that i believe nick is the one going around doing the killing that he might be a suspect but maybe because it's michael douglas i'm thinking of the game this is about a man who's losing control of his life it's not that he's killing people but that he's being framed and everyone's believing that he is this bad guy and and that's the drama there not the mystery of him maybe being a killer I agree with Jacob. I mean, when I think of thriller movies, what I like to see in suspense thrillers is the walls closing in on our protagonist. And here, I mean, they take his gun. They specifically say Nielsen was shot with a revolver. They say, let me see your gun. It is not a revolver. <laughs> it is a semi-automatic. They still smell that gun to see if the gun smells like it had fired that night. But... 
the fact that all of this could be a frame-up, that he could go down for these murders, I'm assuming that at no point anybody thinks Nick killed Johnny Boz. <laughs> he didn't put on a blonde wig and get on top of him? <laughs> but that he could take the rap for some of these others is, I feel, decent suspense. All I'm saying is that's the safe way to play it. That's the way to keep the mainstream audience on the side of Michael Douglas and feeling like he's a heroic-ish kind of character, even though obviously he's got that seedy side we don't want to acknowledge in ourselves. But what is more interesting in noir, what is more true to the dark spirit of noir, is that heroes are villains, and that the femme fatale oftentimes corrupts the good guy into being a participant in murder plots, in harming their own legacy as a hero. And I do think, no, obviously he didn't kill Boz, she killed Boz. But if it's true that everyone that she plays with dies, it's kind of also true that everyone that works with him also dies. These tourists die, his wife dies, now this uh, agent dies. To think that he might be more directly responsible for that would make this a better noir. But I think you're going to get that at the end. Like, it's the fuck of the century, so I know this woman's killing people, and I'm just going to let it go because I want to get laid by her. I guess you could see that as a dark twist. I see that more as a congratulatory middle-aged man AARP uh, participation <laughs> trophy. You have a very different view of middle-aged men, I think, than I do then. <laughs> yes, and of when AARP kicks in, because I don't feel like I'm within two years of that. <laughs> Maybe I'm a different kind of middle-aged man. I don't see Nick as, like, some kind of hero, some kind of living vicariously through him. I, I don't see him as a good guy. I'm still willing to go on that journey and see the drama that he goes through. It doesn't mean I have to like him for it, though. I think Michael Douglas worked in those kinds of roles. If you think of Falling Down and Fatal Attraction, he always sinned, but I, the audience usually stayed with him through it all. And I think that's why you would cast him here, is because he has an ability to hold mainstream audiences and take them to a place that's more anti-hero than hero. But anyway, like, all right, so we haven't really talked about her yet. There is a romantic foil for the attention of Catherine. She likes to pit her lovers against each other. We met Roxy, the good friend on the staircase at the beginning, and now we're finding out that, yeah, like, she is the lover... They make a big production about Sharon Stone planting a big wet one on her lips when Nick comes to confront her. And this is driving him more and more into her plot and more and more towards, I don't know, what do we think he might do? Kill Roxy? I wish I believed that, but I don't. No, I never think he's going to kill Roxy, but what we're setting up here is motive for why he might be accused of killing Roxy. Yeah. But you talk about middle age. When Catherine tells him, I'm going to be at Johnny Boz's club tonight, come see me at the club, and Michael Douglas shows up at this club, and other than Sharon Stone, he's like double the age of everybody in there. I think of myself going clubbing right now and seeing all these Gen Zers and the youngest of millennials and me being in there thinking, I'm going to get some. Yeah, trying to act cool and hip and yeah, forget yeah. about it. With his really low-cut V-neck t-shirt, I'm like, oh boy. That's what I mean about this sort of being a flattery thing for middle-aged men. That it ultimately, for all of its bisexual curiosity, is here to talk specifically about how 
white men still got their shit. Like he can peat in this environment is how we're supposed to believe that he actually like walks away with Sharon Stone. Like she's got women in all kinds of genders grinding against her and doing drugs and all that, which by the way, not a good look now. <laughs> this nightclub, you might say that some of the things in this movie look cool and slick, but this nightclub looks pathetically dated. This neon church with all of this debauchery or whatever is hilariously over the top and bad dancing. It was reminding me of Hellraiser 3's nightclub, if you remember that <laughs> cheesy ass place. I, you might have that on the brain because Hellraiser was actually on TV in one of the shots of this movie. I saw that. Do you think that was an S&M reference since people are being tied up here? It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sins of the flesh. Yeah, of course. But again, who walks away with Catherine? Who wins? Who's the best grinder? And it's Michael Douglas in that V-neck. Yes, that's hilarious. That's laughable. But that's what we're supposed to believe here. That Roxy doesn't have a chance. I mean, couldn't you see this as like get over yourself middle-aged men like here's your fantasy and it's gonna end up in your death like i don't know you keep saying it's flattering maybe it was in 92 i just didn't view it ever that way keep in mind this was a plot this was all arranged roxy is going to watch everything that happens it's not that he beat out roxy for the position it's that one of the things roxy and Catherine like to do is Catherine goes and fucks guys while Roxy is cucked on the side. No, no. That's one of the things Catherine likes to do. Roxy is clearly not happy about this, and Roxy is clearly pissed that it should have been her. I mean, no, she definitely got passed over here. And yeah, she gets to watch, but that isn't something that she's into. Yeah, Roxy says she, referring to Catherine, likes me to watch. Not that she enjoys it. And after they have the fuck of the century, they have this showdown in the bathroom, quote-unquote man-to-man, in which she's threatening to kill him for this. She's jealous. She's definitely a murder suspect, we're supposed to think, could be the one that did Johnny Boz and... Catherine is innocent. I'm surprised that Nick is so hostile to Roxy. I mean, I get that they're both after the same girl, but truthfully, studies have shown that the most common heterosexual male fantasy is multiple women. It's so common as to be boring. And Catherine says, would you like Roxy to join in? But Nick is really territorial about Catherine here. It's like, I now have fucked her. I've given her such a good deep dicking that no woman will ever satisfy her again, Roxy, so you just better hit the streets. Not only that, but I do think that there is kind of a homophobic, Roxy represents the dark all the lesbianism, all of that stuff represents sort of the darker nature. You can't trust these people. Like, they're dangerous. They're psychopaths. I mean, there's no distinction made between being homosexual and being homicidal. Yeah, I, I when watching this, I'm like, oh, LGBTQ community must have not have liked yeah, this. Because, yeah, they have a good point. <laughs> the vengeful lesbians. Like, I'm upset that you're going with a, a heterosexual relationship, and that's going to upset me. I mean, even the ice pick is nothing more than, like, penis envy personified. Like, I mean, she's got to have this phallic thing in order to feel all powerful. Yeah. Again, it would be funny... If it were played different, I, I do think there is a way to be charmed by the naivete of this movie's sense of morality, but I'm bored. I'm just going to put it out there. I think this movie is incredibly boring. 
I have to ask you then, because to me, this movie feels Verhoeven as fuck. Like, watching this, I'm like, I'm thinking of RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, all those showgirls. Like, this is kind of what he does. And I know you've enjoyed some of those other movies. So what do you think the difference is then? Oh, it's obvious. What works in science fiction doesn't work for erotic thrillers. Yeah, RoboCop is an overtop satire. If you're making satire, you can go big. If you're trying to do Hitchcock, I would suggest doing one bump or two, but don't do the whole fucking bag of cocaine. Like, it's, this is too much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bored at all here. I remember when I first saw this movie, when, during their sex scene, Catherine pulls out that white scarf and ties up Nick just like Johnny Boz was tied up. And then she's on top like she was with Johnny Boz. She reaches her hand back. She's under the covers. Is she getting the ice pick? Is Nick about to be attacked? Is he helpless because his hands are tied up? And then when she falls forward, she's just falling forward in passion. She does not have a weapon. But that was true suspense for me in theaters the first time I saw this film, and now I can still acknowledge that it is a suspenseful moment, even though I know how it's going to end. And this was my first viewing, and it was not that I thought he was going to die at this moment, but it was a suspenseful moment. Like, what is she up to? She's doing everything that happened to Johnny Boz. And yeah, is that ice pick going to come out? Like, I'm really into the moment. Ah, it's stupid. Like, so much of this movie, it's just dumb. Please elaborate. Like, this is improbable and not compelling. And the idea that this man is being lured into some kind of gay hot thing and will emerge victorious and virile is, again, laughable, but, like, not believable. When Al Pacino goes into the world of cruising, there's something about the portrayal of that that still feels scary and dangerous. And here, it feels... I know you don't like the word sweaty, but it just feels all like heavy breathing and trench coat and kind of overblown, full of hot air. It doesn't have authenticity as a thriller at all. It's nothing here is scary. And again, the fact that there's even a pretense that we're not to know who the killer is, is a joke. I acknowledge that in 1992, this stuff is risque, which again, makes it kind of sweet that 30 years on, we can come back and see this as dangerous. I'm just saying it's not really playing as very dangerous. You might be enjoying it as camp, but it is not a good thriller. It is not edge of your seat. What's going to be happening next? Who are these complicated, dark, scary people? I'm always wondering who's going to be the next one to die. They start knocking people off pretty regularly in the second hour where things start closing in. Roxy is the next one to die. And I guess this, she's omnipotent, right? So Catherine did plan this. She knew making Roxy watch her with Nick would drive Roxy so crazy that Roxy would try to kill Nick. And in the process, Nick would kill Roxy. We get very briefly, a little bit later, an unsealed file on Roxy in which she took her dad's straight razor and killed her brothers or something? Yes. Yeah. We don't really know what drives Roxy to kill, but if you know that someone has been driven to kill, you can expect when they're mad, they may go there again. Yes, Catherine's idea of amusement, of foreplay, I don't think she's really turned on by sex. She's turned on by the idea that she can get people so horny and hopped up that they might kill each other for her. It's narcissism. 
And the next one I thought was going to be dead is Gus. We've had this supporting character who's come in with little bits of helpful this and that. He's the one that figured out that Catherine had paid for the information from the psyche Val well before Michael Douglas had met her. And now he's hanging out at the country and Western bar that they, like the only one that's in San Francisco. I think the same one Eddie Murphy crashed in 48 hours. <laughs> I was thinking that, and, and I don't know, maybe I relate more to Gus as a middle-aged man, because out of these two clubs, I'm going to that country Western bar. I don't like country music, but that's much more uh, just my tone. And, and my, you know, I, I'm not up for that kind of club life. So I like Gus. I felt it was weird early on when Gus kept calling him Hoss. I'm like... Is he supposed to be Southern, country, Western? And now we get him with the big hat and the bolo tie. I mean, they're just going all out in the cowboy drag. They put this guy in for a diner scene that is almost as needless as all of the stuff with Hazel Dobkins. I I feel like this scene slows the movie down. I think this movie is slow. But I thought all of this was leading to, oh, if he's got secrets to share, this is where he's going to get killed. When we get POV shots inside the sports car or whatever, whoever's outside the diner, I'm thinking, oh, this is where this guy gets taken out. But no, it's Roxy here to run down Michael Douglas. I hear what you guys are saying. Yes, it's one way to frame a thriller in which we think that all the people dying make our main character look guilty. But it is more interesting if you actually believe your main character could be a suspect. And I do think we are to think that Nick might have wanted to kill Roxy. And that by hanging out with Catherine, by being influenced by her basic instincts, by being so much like her, that he is doing the kinds of things that she's doing. That I guess it would just be more interesting to me if he were as bad as she were. I did think that maybe Nick was... <laughs> trying to passively kill Gus. Like, I think Gus is pretty drunk when he drives off there. I'm like, (laughs) maybe he allowed him to do that. He'll know he'll get in some kind of accident. But no, it just leads to a chase scene with Roxy. He really tried to not let Gus drive. Gus was pretty adamant he was driving. And Stuart, I get what you're saying. And yes, that's one way to play a noir film is that your main character could become a killer. But that's not the only way to play a suspense thriller you can play it in the they're going to be framed for actions way and have that play just as well i am not wishing that i ever thought nick was going to become a killer the only person nick might kill is Catherine for what she's going to do to him but isn't that what this movie is saying if it's saying anything at all it's saying that he is getting primal that tear away all the psychology this is people at their most base This is who we really are, is we're these predatory sexual beings that kill and fuck. And like she is stripping him of his modernity and getting him to that place. I feel like that's where this movie wants to go. I feel like that's the movie Verhoeven wants to make. No, I agree. I think that is the movie. Is it 100% successful at getting there? No. Like I said, I need more backstory with Nick. I need to understand him more as a character. But I do... And maybe it's incompetent way, as you might describe it, Stuart, like that. Yeah, that's what it's getting at. But there is so much that is good in this film, including, yes, the car chase that is the San Francisco setting, the good use of San Francisco roads, the way Jan de Bont films this. I mean, I am 
into this film while knowing every mystery. The fourth time I watched this film for this review, I was having as good a time as the first time I had revisited this film in 20-some years, and I think that's owed a lot to the overall themes of the movie of duplicity and of primal nature. You know, usually I'm the one, like, if we're doing a horror movie, I need some kind of subtext to really sink my teeth into it and enjoy it. Like this one, there is no subtext. Like, it, it, it's about base people doing base, instinctual, dirty things. That's the fun of it to me. I do think there's craft behind it. And yeah, I'm into this film. This is the first time I've seen it, and I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm It's holding my attention. And yes, it's not a deep one, but it's an enjoyable one. I think it's meandering. I mean, again, this movie is over two hours. When we have to go back to It's Beth all along, which I guess is the climax of this movie, like that is just like yawn. Like I couldn't care less. When Roxy dies, like so does the rest of my interest in what's happening on screen. And I actually ramp up with the mystery that I did not remember about this Lisa Oberman, Oberman, all of this. I'm really trying to figure out what is being set up here. And that Catherine says earlier in the film, I don't make confessions. But here she's doing this pillow talk and saying all of this about this Lisa Hoberman who stalked her after one sexual encounter in college and went all single white female on her. Then I'm interested in this. And yeah, that Nick gets actual leads to follow up on. He detects. He's a (laughs) good detective in that way. I like following these dominoes as they fall. I thought, because I think we all thought when you initially watched this, there's got to be some twist. It can't just be Catherine as the killer, because that's how these things usually go. I thought the twist was going to be Catherine was Lisa, that she killed whoever Catherine was in college and assumed her identity. But no, we're going to find out that Lisa is actually Beth. Yeah, and she was blonde, see? That's the thing. You look at the driver's (laughs) license, one of them damn blondes that sleeps with women. We know what those are. But she was a brunette who slept with women who became a blonde because she was obsessed. Right. Catherine corrupts. That's the idea, is if you spend any time with Catherine, you ultimately will be carnal and psychopathic. But the one thing we'll never know is, was Beth obsessed with Catherine or was Catherine obsessed with Beth, which is what Beth puts forth? Yeah, because I think... Don't think Beth is the killer by the end of this. It is Catherine. Like, I go with Beth's story when I look back on everything that we're told. See, because Beth has a dead husband who died under mysterious circumstances, and because Beth tells Nick, I experimented one time in college with a woman, but then we find out later that she was cheating on her husband with a lesbian lover, and because her hair was blonde in that photo, and Catherine filed a restraining order against Beth, which... Nick never finds, but there was a record of that incident. I do believe Beth went crazy obsessing over Catherine. I do think that is Beth's sin. Did she kill anyone? No. But did she stalk Catherine in college? I think so. She might have killed her husband. I mean, again, the implication is it rubs off on you. The idea is if you go to that dark place and do those dark, dirty sex acts and hang out with that psychopath, you will end up returning to your normal middle-class life and doing something psychopathic. I think we're to think that her husband tried to get her away and make her change her name and get out of that situation, but in the end, she had to kill him. 
I mean, it's dumb. I don't want, you know, like the truth is like all of this is very stupid. So it's hard for me to like really care. But, you know, that's I think you can take it as seriously as you want. But those are the implications I'm seeing. Yeah, I do feel like as we get closer to the end of this film, they start throwing everything, including the kitchen sink at you. Just trying to throw you off the path of wherever this is going to go. Yeah. Like when they go to look up who Dr. Garner is, I'm like, who was that? Like I had to rewind and like figure out who that <laughs> character was again. Like, yeah, because they just want to pile it all on now. Yeah, it's not very well edited at this point. I do feel like, yeah, we're hopping around and it's to create suspense and confusion and twists. But yeah, I really feel like sloppy. And I just want to point out, Joe Astorhouse is proud of the fact that he turned in a first draft that got made, but I wouldn't be. Yeah, you, well, when you turn in a first draft, you might hope that somebody further in the creative process is going to refine. Directors are known for putting their personal touches on scripts and not always filming what they're handed. But yeah, in this case, the information we're getting is coming too scattered. You've got Jack McGee, an actor I know from, like, Rescue Me and things as a sheriff talking about a murder case. And then you've got a nurse being like, this doctor hasn't worked here for years ever since he was shot. I mean, there's too much information coming from too many disparate sources. And, you know, you can blame the editing. I'm going to blame the scripting because the editor had to somehow fit all this shit in and make it the movie still come in just a little bit over two hours. So, yeah, it gets a little bit messy, but what it comes down to is there becomes probable cause that Beth could be the killer because Beth could still be obsessed with Catherine. Because let's face it, Catherine does have the world's best pussy. I mean, look what she does to the cops. Look what she does to her one-time college lover. You sleep with Catherine and you are hooked for life. What James Bond is to penis, Catherine is to vagina. If those two ever met, <laughs> the world would end. It would be like the Big Bang all over again. And she is done with Nick. It should be said she's finished her book and she's, if nothing else, she may not be a killer, or at least they might not have caught her, but she's predatory in the way that artists are. I've taken your story. I'm going to turn it into my next hit novel. And you are meaningless to me now. Like, I don't have a use for you. We are to think that he has been kicked to the curb for Hazel. <laughs> Catherine's gone back to the old lady. A lot of people, I'm surprised when I read this and heard Verhoeven talking. But when credits rolled, do you know a lot of people were confused? Wait, who's the killer then? What did they think that ice pick was? We'll talk about what that ice pick is. But people wondered who the killer is. And Verhoeven's like, if you watch the film, the clues are there. It clearly tells you who the killer is. I think one of the biggest clues is right here when her dot matrix printer <laughs> is printing her book. If you read the lines, it says it talks about his partner in the elevator getting stabbed by somebody in a black cloak and dying in the elevator as Shooter is running up the stairs trying to rescue him. And so right there, already, Catherine has written the ending of her story, but she now needs to enact it. And the climax of the story involves killing Gus and framing Beth for all of it. Oh, good catch. I didn't read what was coming out of the printer. Yeah, and Gus believes he's gotten a tip. He's been called and told that somebody that knew both Catherine and Beth 
during this college phase where professors are dying of ice picks and what have you and and girls are experimenting with each other there's some third roommate that is going to give them all the information if he just goes to the fourth floor of this random building where of course the killer awaits him and this is beth's building (laughs) and at no point does nick say oh we're at beth's you know i fucked her here a few nights ago do i have to keep saying stupid this movie is stupid but Nick has been suspended. Oh, my God. So despite the fact that Gus has consulted Nick at every turn. Right. And Gus said, let's get in the car and go over to this building. (laughs) I love that. Nick, you got to wait in the car. (laughs) I'm going alone. Yeah, this is where you have Heath Ledger Joker omniscience. Like, how did Catherine know that just Gus would come up, that it wouldn't be both of them? Like, yeah, it gets silly. Yeah. I remember actively heckling. Like, I remember in the audience, the only time I saw this movie, in theaters, wasn't just me and the people I was with. People were cracking their shit up when we have this climax here. Not so much with Gus dying, but when we get the, like, fallen Bart Simpson keychain shot. Yeah, when Beth pulls out that keychain. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is, why did they choose that if this was supposed to be this sad moment? That's so distracting. I'm guessing they wanted something memorable so that when she pulled out her keys earlier, you would know they are her keys and you remember it later. And at the time, Bart Simpson was so everywhere (laughs) that it wouldn't be as funny as it is today. I mean, I imagine it would be the equivalent of like a Pikachu keychain now or something. No, it was funny then. It was funny then. And again, she could just have keys. Like, why you needed to identify them with this character. Not even, like, connected to the studio. It's not even Fox making this movie. Like, I don't know why they needed to have Bart Simpson in this moment. But he is such a buzzkill. I have a problem with this scene in that I don't understand why Beth is there reaching into her pocket for her keys. The cop keeps saying, put your hands up. And she continues to reach for the keys. Now, I know this happens sometimes in real life. I've seen the dash cam videos of when cops are like, put your hands on the wheel. And the guys are like reaching for the glove box to get their insurance information and just not listening. But it bothers me that her lack of compliance. She's stupid. Yes, it's stupid. She's stupid. Yeah, it's the fact that I don't think she is a cop, but she works with the police force. Like, she should know how that all goes. And obviously, Gus was stabbed. The only person killed with a gun has been the internal affairs officer with that revolver. And so, to think Beth is carrying a gun, I guess her husband was killed with by gunfire. So maybe you could think she has a gun, but I don't know. Even Verhoeven admits this is not well motivated he said on set the actors are like why is she doing this why am i shooting her why are my hands in my pocket and verhoven's like because the script says it just go act it out so three million dollars for this script yes (laughs) i don't really get why nick shoots her but i i understand like they've set him up that he's this hothead shooter and he's fired his gun before and he's gonna make those decisions and Catherine has pushed him that way but yeah I just don't understand why Beth didn't take her hands out of her pockets that's all it would have taken to completely undermine Catherine's entire plot is take your hand out of your pocket but she's gone she knows everything (laughs) or you could take the idea and I think there would be a reading of this if you had made this movie that Nick, when he is shooting on accident, like tourists, 
as secretly wanting to do it. Because secretly he is a shooter. Secretly he is a killer. Secretly he did want to bump off this woman and go back to Catherine. I think that dark reading of his character is appropriate in this moment. Also, Catherine is so cool and calm in every scene that my imagining of her running around like spy versus spy, you know, tiptoeing into the staircase to throw down the police raincoat and the wig and sneaking into Beth's apartment to plant evidence and things. She had to be booking it. (laughs) Yeah, the mind is real is thinking about all the work that she did for some shitty novel. That was already finished, but let's keep going. But Nick knows, or at least strongly suspects, that Beth didn't do it. But it doesn't matter because, well, fuck of the century and all. You know, it's hard to figure out Nick because early on he was like, cheated the lie detector test, I know her character, she did it, she did it. And then in the middle of the movie, Gus is like, why did you sleep with her? I'm like, I don't think it's her, I think it's Beth, I think it's Roxy, I think it's anyone else. And now it's, again, it's very hard to know what he knows. I think he's just decided, as you say, he's going with his base impulses. And so is she. The joke is really not that he would go back to her, but the fact is, like, his dick is so good Even though she's got the ice pick at the waiting, she just has been turned to him. I'm going to keep you around for a while, maybe forever. Yeah, no, I think it's because he's malleable. Like, at first, it's fuck like minks, raise rugrats, and then live happily ever after. Catherine hates rugrats, and he's like, okay, well, cut that part out. We'll just fucking live happily ever after. And she's like, okay, I got a man here I can manipulate. I'm not going to have to have his baby and raise his kids at the very least. But again, I think that there is something flattering to the Michael Douglas ego that his dick was so good. We never saw evidence of it, but it was so good that this dyke is going to throw away her ice pick and say, I found the penis I've been looking for. Has she thrown it away? I feel like that's just sitting there for when she gets upset with them. Yeah, they're having sex. And once again, she's on top. And once again, she falls forward. And once again, we're supposed to think, oh, is that an ice pick? And then that she's holding him. Her hand reaches down under the bed. Because she's going to get him. But she comes up real fast just to grab his head and kiss him. The film fades to black. The film is over. And then it unfades. It comes back for the reveal that under the bed is... An ice pick. Right. In case you thought that that they were just fooling you and she didn't ever have the weapon. She very much had the weapon. She very much was going to do him like she did every other subject of her novels. You got to die at the end. I've written the story. That's the way it's got to go. But Michael Douglas has won. He won this game because he had the right deck. I I didn't take that as a win. I I took that as he's going to get it eventually from her. I don't understand (laughs) if she killed him then all of the suspicion she has pushed onto beth all the ways she's cleared her own name now it's all starting over again if she kills him because you know she was in bed with him and but she talked to someone like three years ago and has an alibi set up that's just how she works yeah i believe the word you're searching for is that's stupid and i agree Yes, this final shot and all of the teases that she's going to knife him at the end, it does 
come across as stupid. I got that, like, a lot of people went, oh, she really was the killer. And to me, I'm like, why put that ice pick there? Because if you kill him, you're really just fucking yourself. And that wouldn't be a satisfying ending of this movie either, as if she started stabbing him with an ice pick and credits rolled. No, obviously. But again, I think we're to understand her character as this is part of her ritual. I pick a subject, I debase them, I get them to their lowest level, I tear away all of their pretensions so that they're just like me, I write this story about it, and then the way that I move on to the next story, this is just like punctuation. This is the end. I need the character to die. So I would think that if she's not planting that ice pick in him, then she's putting away the word processor as well. She won't be telling any more stories. She is going to live some normal domesticated life because she's given up that seedy, sexy life that uh, was so corrupting. Wow, so that sequel next week is going to be really boring. I don't know what that sequel is next week. I don't know anyone that saw it. I don't know anything about it other than Michael Douglas will not be back. So you guys are probably right. She's going to keep that ice pick uh, in reserve. And when we see her again, she will have used it on him. Well, we'll talk about that next week. But for this week, let me ask you something man to man. Do you recommend Basic Instinct, Jacob? Maybe film noir isn't the right way to view this, Stuart. Maybe maybe that was your problem. You're, you're holding this up against Vertigo and some of these greats. And yeah, maybe this is more just Pulp Fiction. And I don't mean the Tarantino film, but just that kind of seedy, erotic, violent, you know, I've never read a romance novel that you pick up at the <laughs> grocery store, but there are books like that that I enjoy, like Richard Stark's Parker novels, or if you go back to our books and nachos when Jason and I reviewed the Escape from a New York novelization, just really good pulp fiction where the, the, the language it uses, and it, it's not high art, and I feel like that's kind of where Verhoeven really excels, like Robocop, peak of cinema for me, but it is a crazy film about a half-man, half-robot shooting people in Detroit, and he he somehow like makes that super entertaining and I, I feel like Verhoeven total recall like three-titted mutant women and like is that high art no but that's a really entertaining film and, and so yeah sometimes I don't need all that subtext or what it's getting at to enjoy the film and I feel like this film lives in that space this script could be better like we've talked about this ending where it kind of falls apart and I feel like if you wanted a real deep psychological thriller you got to really work on Michael Douglas's character and, and rewrite what he's going through to get at what you've been talking about, Stuart. Like, he is secretly the killer and, and all those kinds of things. But enjoyable film, erotic thriller, sex, violence, a lot of violence, a lot of sex. And I think if you think this is tame by today's standards, like social media, it, they would get up in arms with this just like communities did. Maybe for better reasons when this originally came out, but people would still be upset by this film. So again, if, if you want that kind of film that pushes boundaries and is seedy and, and just enjoys itself in, in those margins, yeah, I recommend Basic Instinct. Stuart. Yeah, obviously, I, I did not rediscover a classic. I was hoping, believe me, I, as I said at the beginning of this, I was hoping I had a feeling that it was going to remain stupid. The things that stuck with me in my head, Bart Simpson keychains, stupid. Like, I just remember there were just parts that made you go, ugh. But I was hoping, as it's true of a lot of things, when you go back 30 years later, you can appreciate the culture that created it and what might have seemed daring and risque now seems funny campy enjoyable in a 
tongue-in-cheek kind of way. That was really hope, how I hoped to discover it, because I do think Verhoeven many times does great tongue-in-cheek. Robocop, Total Recall, both movies, Jacob, I agree with you. They're not art, but I like it a lot. So why can't this work in the same way? Because it's boring. Because ultimately, this meandering, terrible script can't be taken seriously and just doesn't have enough heat. It's too long. And the acting is no good. It doesn't pull me in. I don't know what else to say other than there was very little to, to keep me tethered. And by the end of it, I was I would have done anything to get away from this movie. It's so dull. It's not funny. It's not enjoyable. I wish it were. I wish I had had a good time. But... It's kind of mystifying that this did as well for the careers of the people involved as it did, because I think it's a poor reflection on them now. I like Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone and Paul Verhoeven a whole lot more than this movie. And yeah, if you can't tell, I'm going to recommend this film, and I'm glad I am, because A, I declared myself the fan of this movie, and thus was obligated to watch it repeatedly with commentaries and everything, and so I'm glad that wasn't torture. But B, I hadn't seen this film in a long time, I had good memories of the movie, it's always nice when you go back to a film and discover you still enjoy it, versus Goonies, where you go back and go... Oh shit, I used to like this. But what keeps me going here are the things that turn Stewart off. I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. I love the performances that are going on here, stilted though they may be. Michael Douglas carries this entire movie with a performance that is not based on realism. He is not going to come across like an actual cop. If he was transported out of this movie and right into an episode of NYPD Blue, it would be like an SNL sketch of how he's going. I mean, Joe Esterhouse also wrote Jade. And if you've seen Jade, you know that there's a lot of stilted dialogue, stilted acting in that. And yet, for what it is, it works for that movie. And here, this works for this movie. And Sharon Stone captivates the screen. There's a reason this turned her into a megastar, and it's not because she crossed and uncrossed her legs. It's because she rose up and gave a performance worthy of an A-list star, and yeah, became the talk of the town, the talk of the country, because everybody was talking about this femme fatale and its dangerous sex, so as dangerous as it can get with a white silk scarf as bondage gear. I'll agree with Stewart's word dumb, but I don't consider that a problem for this film because I think it's got a lot going for it. Jan de Bont and the way he makes a modern film noir look, I can't give enough compliments to. And in the hands of Verhoeven, there's a lot not to like about Verhoeven's films, the way they are over the top. But if you like Verhoeven, I can't imagine hating this one. Yeah, I love Verhoeven's American stuff. And so this is an easy recommend. What'd you think of Fourth Man, by the way? Fourth Man, I would recommend it, but not nearly as strong. It's not as tight of a film. It's got a lot of religious overtones that aren't entirely fulfilled. Verhoeven said when talking about Basic Instinct that Catherine is like the character from The Fourth Man, only without the witchcraft. And 
knowing that he thinks there's witchcraft going on in that movie that is never depicted as witchcraft in the movie really tinted my view of what he thinks he made that movie to be. Oh man, I was getting super excited. Like Basic Instinct with witches? Sign me up. <laughs> That's what I thought. I, I immediately went for that. But basically what it is, is a guy is in town doing a lecture, has sex with this woman, finds out this woman has had three husbands who are all dead. He wants to seduce her other lover, and then he and the other lover aren't sure which one of them is going to be the fourth man to die. And it has a lot of happenstance like this film. I don't feel the femme fatale works as well in that film because at no point does she seem dangerous. It plays like it all could be in the protagonist's head. Yes. Like, he could just be way too drunk, and he's paranoid about all of this. I think that's a reading of that movie. Yeah. Or it could be that she's actually a femme fatale. I liked it. I didn't love it. It's really rough around the edges. But if you want to see more of Verhoeven doing this, yeah, I give it a recommend. Yeah, I, my memory was I enjoyed it a whole lot more than Basic Instinct when I discovered it much later after Basic Instinct. But I didn't go back to it for this viewing. I was just curious how it might have held up as well. But there were other films of the time. I would say that if I were going to vote for my favorite erotic thrillers of this era, Last Seduction, or I remember really liking Romeo is Bleeding as well. Very similar in the idea of the femme fatale. Bound even, maybe. Bound is great. Yeah, I, this one, it always had too much hot air for me. And I just never wanted to acknowledge that it was some classic. And consequently, I never went and saw 14 years later the sequel we're going to cover next week. Now, I don't think that the donor asked us to do it, but because we're completists or masochists, uh, we're going to tie that silk scarf to your arms and, and make you find out what happened in 2006 Basic Instinct 2. Yeah, I'm having American Psycho 2 flashbacks, but you're telling me Sharon Stone's showing up in this one, unlike Christian Bale. Yeah, it's not a total recast or like her daughter or anything like that. It's her. I remember that movie coming out vaguely. In theaters? I've never even heard of this one. Yeah, it was theatrically released, and I remember thinking, I never, ever want to see that. And, you know, just because somebody donates for one part of a series, we're not always doing the whole series. We did it with My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. We're doing it here. Thanks, Morbius. <laughs> Kinda. We have gaps, and this is filling a gap. But I guess I'm going to finally find out what is Basic Instinct 2 when done in 2006? Was anybody wanting it? The box office says no. You'll find out what we say next week. And speaking of things that people want, I do think we have something slightly more appetizing for folks beginning this Friday. Maybe the most heavily requested series we haven't done yet. Gold Level Spring. We're going to Hogwarts. Eight films... Starting with the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry Potter is now come to now playing. It's the largest franchise we haven't covered, that's for sure. And I know it is a millennial touchstone. We are going to be some Gen Xers. Stuart, you're pretty much a newbie. We have Brock joining us, who's a big fan. And I'm somewhere in the middle between those two. And we're going to be watching all eight Harry Potter films. And then... All three Fantastic Beasts films, 
with the third one being the new theatrical release. And over at booksandnachos.com, the three of us are going to be talking about the original novels that inspired all of these movies. So you can find that at booksandnachos.com. It is the kickoff to our spring-summer 2022 donation drive. If you do a $10 donation later this summer, you're getting some other YA book adaptations. One of the series Jacob has wanted to cover for more than a decade, Twilight. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'm a fan. But I've watched those movies. I went to the theaters for the last couple of them to see them. Like, couldn't wait for them to come out. This is the Robin Pattinson donation series. He's going to show up in Harry Potter, and he's going to star in these films. Yeah, I think you love those films like you love cats. Like, yeah, you get really excited about it. I've never seen, read, or really know anything about Twilight other than it has sparkling vampires. That's all that I know. Yeah, just wait for that last one. If you're a horror hound... It may be the most violent PG-13 film I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. It is shocking. I'm in. I'm on board. I'm going to do the whole experience with you. That is going to be our spring donation drive. And yeah, I, I think we're reaching out to new generations, seeing what us think about what the kids like today. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Oh, I was at Comic-Con when these movies were coming out. It's just not the young kids. No. There's a lot of old women into them, too. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then for gold level, $25 or more, you get the Twilight reviews and all eight Harry Potter reviews. If you go platinum for $35 or more, you also get the Fantastic Beasts reviews. And then coming out this summer, they promise us Top Gun 2. So, we still have the Tom Cruise level donation available out there. If you've passed it up the past four donation drives, here's your probably last chance to hear 11 Tom Cruise movie reviews. And because it kind of fits with Harry Potter, we've also brought out through the classic donation drive system our nine-part Lord of the Rings retrospective series. So you can find out all the details on that at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And just a reminder, it is your support that allows us to do the show we do every single week. And while we are doing Basic Instinct 2 next week, it's going to be a big year with a lot of theatrically released films, assuming COVID allows that. I Mm. looked at our schedule. We're going to theaters a lot this spring and summer. So we need your support to make all of that happen with the editing, with the equipment, with tickets, with all the things that go on behind the scenes, new websites. It's your support that makes it all happen. So you can find out how to support our show and get exclusive thank you bonus podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So thank you in advance for your support. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, goodbye, Shooter. not going to confess all my secrets, Nick, just because I have an orgasm. You won't learn anything I don't want you to know. Yes, I will. And I'll nail you. Nah. You'll just fall in love with me. I'm in love with you already. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. Look, I don't really feel like talking anymore. We hope you enjoyed the show. I hear you were brilliant in that. 
And a special thanks to Kyle for his incredible support of our show and for picking Basic Instinct for our hosts to review. He wasn't afraid of experimenting. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. You like watching me do it, don't you? Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Ain't you got nothing better to do than come in here and jack off the damn machine? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Exactly what did you have in mind, Mr. Corelli? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Maybe she saw something she's never seen before. She's seen everything before. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Tell me something you're afraid of. Boredom. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. What is your problem? I'm trying to help you. Why won't you let me help you? I don't want your help. I don't need your help. Yes, you do. Need more now playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Well, she got that magna cum laude pussy on her that done fried up your brain. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Oh, I'll be leaving about midnight in case you are going to follow me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You know what I like about you? You enjoy being in control. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I don't make any rules, Nick. I go with the flow. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Don't work too hard, shooter. Might drive you to drink. Now playing credits read by Brock. That's her pussy talking, it ain't your brain. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Would it bother you if you were wrong? Would it bother you if I was right? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. What are you going to do? Charge me with smoking? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You have the right to an attorney. Why would I need an attorney? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So read me my rights and arrest me, and then I'll go downtown. Come back soon, baby. I miss you.
Oh, for sure, yeah. Flesh of the sin, or yeah, sins of the flesh. Yeah, of course. How deeply this film influenced my entire worldview about sex. Mm. So the sex Uh is definitely (laughs) an important part of this film. When I, I, I was like, so that's where I got that from, is all I'll say. But I didn't realize What are you that. doing with ice picks, Arnie? Now I'm worried. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it was, okay? I'm not going to say if it's silk scarves, back clawing, ice picks. Lesbians watching you, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Gonna... <laughs> All of the above, yeah. 